We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. Today's topic is nationalism and conservatism, as well as patriotism. What are these things? Are they the same? And are some of them good and some bad? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. Today's topic is essentially threefold. What it means to be a conservative, a patriot, and a nationalist. Are these things good or are they bad? Do they overlap? Are they the same thing in some, in some cases? Conservatism, patriotism, and nationalism. And then, of course, because I'm a Christian, we're going to talk about Christian nationalism, Christian patriotism, and what it means to be a Christian conservative. That's today's show. And I'm going to talk about it in the context of the previous show, where I talked about Douglas Grotice's new book, where he talks about confronting critical race theory, critical theory, and whether or not we should burn America down, whether or not the the challenges, the threats from Black Lives Matter, etc., and proponents of critical theory, which is rampant in our schools right now, those that believe that socialism is a better is a better model for justice and human rights than capitalism and free enterprise and constitutional liberty. Grotice, excuse me, Grotice argues in his book titled Fire in the Streets that we can confidently respond to incendiary cultural topics by grounding our argument in the history of our country. Well, what is that history? Should we be proud of that history? Should we preserve that history? Or should we tear it down and deconstruct America because America is bad, systemically racist, for example, and unjust, for example, that our Constitution was crafted by evil men white slave owners, and therefore there's nothing good in the Constitution. It has to be thrown out, and we have to start all over again. That's essentially the argument of critical theory and critical race theory. Uh, we, we know that because the leaders of Black Lives Matter have said, if you don't give us what we want, we will burn the nation down. And they proved that that wasn't just um, metaphor. They actually took to the streets in places like Baltimore and Indianapolis, Washington, D.C., Kenosha, Wisconsin, San Francisco, Portland, and they've burned it down to the point where even today the devastation in those cities is so rampant that businesses are leaving. Plywood still is uh, in windows where there used to be a vibrant business sector of downtown 
uh, urban life in these areas. We see looting from local retailers to the point where these owners of the stores need to just abandon them and leave. They've burned it down. Chaos, disruption, never let a good crisis go to waste. It seems to be their, ta- their tactic. Saul Alinsky is smiling. Marx is smiling. Engels is smiling. Lenin, Stalin, Mao. This is the agenda. Deconstruct a free society so that you can rebuild something that you argue is going to be more just, but it won't be as free because freedom and justice can't go together essentially, is the argument of socialism and communism. Because you no longer have the right of free speech, the right to bear arms, the right to religious freedom, the right to association, uh, the right to private property. Those rights are given up for the, for, for the greater good, for the social order, for social justice. So, when you argue against all of that stuff, you say, no, no, that's bad. That's not the context of our culture. That's not in keeping with the history of the United States of America. And in fact, the United States of America was founded on a different premise, not an atheistic premise, but a premise that was grounded in a Judeo-Christian ethic. In fact, the Christian ethic that was explicitly extolled and elevated by our founding fathers And we can quote multiple, multiple founding fathers where they grounded, you know, the birth of this new country, the American experiment. American exceptionalism was grounded in a biblical worldview. Now, when I say that, oh, you're a Christian nationalist, you you are a crackpot, you're a right-wing religious wingnut, You, you believe in segregation, you believe in nationalism. You believe in all these bad things. And they've crafted a new word. They've invented a new term in many ways. I'm not saying it's brand new, but they certainly have elevated it and redefined it. And that term is Christian nationalism. And anytime you argue for conservative principles, uh, principles that are grounded in the American experiment, ex- the, the American, the argument for American exceptionalism, then somehow what about Christian nationalism is the retort? That's the topic of today's show. I'm going to pick this apart a little bit and give you my response. Let's take a break. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. So I'm reading this book by Douglas Grotheis, Fire in the Streets, How You Can Confidently Respond to Incendiary Cultural Topics. And in that book, I found an excellent uh, definition, his definition, of a conservative. And I read that to you uh, in, in yesterday's show. I'm going to read it to you again. And then I'm going to give you an exchange. I'm going to share an exchange with you between uh, one of my Facebook followers and, uh, and a couple others uh, who have engaged with that, with that definition of what it means to be a conservative. Uh, a definition that not only is held by Grotheis, but a definition that is held by a black scholar by the name of Thomas Sowell, who used to be a Marxist and now is a conservative thought leader out of the Hoover Institute. You should read Thomas Sowell if you haven't. He's a very, very bright man, and he knows from whence he speaks. I always respect people like Ronald Reagan or Jean Kirkpatrick 
or Clarence Thomas or Thomas Sowell, who were there. They were on the other side of the fence. They argued for these things. David Horowitz is another one. They were, they were on the left, and they recognized that this worldview was broken and that the lies endemic in that worldview were going to lead to very bad places. And they were honest enough with themselves to, to uh, repent, if you will, to return to true north. They recognized that in their fight for things that were good, they were actually embracing an ideology and a worldview that was bad. And a bad worldview would not lead to good places. And therefore, they, they abandoned the lies of that worldview and they embraced a worldview that was older than themselves, ideas that had stood the test of time, ideas that had endured over the centuries, over the millennia. They embraced these ideas. They became conservatives. They conserved the ideas that worked. Okay? All right. So when I say I'm a conservative, I agree with Douglas Grotice's definition of that in his book. He said, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. All progressives and especially critical race theory advocates focus on denigrating rather than on preserving legitimate institutions. His language, do you recognize it there? You know, progressives denigrate, they tear down, whereas conservatives preserve, they conserve legitimate institutions, legitimate ideas. Back to his quote, the system must be destroyed in the mind of the left, and they'll worry about how to rebuild it later, if at all. As, as Black Lives Matter leader Hawk Newsom put it, if the country doesn't give us what we want, then we'll burn it down. And then he goes on, he says this, a conservative holds to what Thomas Sowell calls a constrained vision. Social and political aims should be calibrated to avoid utopian ends. A conservative is skeptical since humanity is not subject to such perfections. Conservatives are eagle-eyed to unintended consequences, close quote. And I posted this, as you know, and I said why I'm a conservative and just cited these quotes. I think this is an excellent summary of the strengths of being someone who preserves legitimate institutions rather than denigrates them. Someone who recognizes the strengths of America, the exceptionalism of America, rather than looking for ways to just burn it down if you don't give me what, you, what I want. And as a former Marxist, Thomas Sowell says, Conservatives hold to a constrained vision. We, we constrain ourselves. We restrict ourselves. We stay within the fences that have proven to be viable and important to freedom. Po political aims are calibrated to avoid jumping over the fence out into the utopian ends of the Grand Prairie, where we're going to get eaten alive by wolves. There was a reason for the fence in the first place. In other words, conservatives are skeptical. We don't look at new ideas as being good just because they're new and in vogue and popular. No, we're skeptical of those ideas because if they run contrary to the test of time, to things that have been proven throughout the ages by the sages, no, we're skeptical. We say, no, nah, I think we've been here before, and I don't think we want to do that stupid thing and embrace that stupid idea again. We are eagle-eyed to the unintended consequences of these ideas because these ideas don't work. We've read a little bit. We understand the lessons of history, the classics, and we don't discard them just because they were written by people that had a different color of skin than us or came from a different country than us. All right? 
So this is what a conservative is, and I embrace that. I agree. All right. So when I posted that, I had a a woman. I won't mention her last name. Her first name is Gail. She follows me, and I and I'm not trying to be cruel to her. In fact, I'm guessing that she and I probably agree on a lot. Maybe 90%. Let's just use that number. But she responds to my post and says, what about Christian nationalism? So she sees Christian nationalism in that definition of what it means to be a conservative. That definition that I just read to you from Douglas Grotice as well as Thomas Sowell. Christian nationalism is endemic in that definition, I guess. Otherwise, why did she ask the question, what about Christian nationalism? And she wrote this. She said, I'm a Christian patriot. One more time. I'm a Christian patriot. I vote with biblical values according to God's word. I pray that God will bring others to the same set of values and to know Jesus. But I'm not about forcing those values on others. That's God's job. Right? Full stop right there. What about that quote from Grotice and Soul? What about that suggests that anybody is forcing any values on anyone else? Where, Where is she getting that? Why is she inserting that assumption into her comment? I, you know, that's that's ask the question, rhetorical question. Why are you suggesting that anybody's forcing anything on anyone right now by virtue of a, this definition of being a conservative? Um, okay, back to her quote. As a conservative patriot, she says, I love my country and I spent 30 years of my life following my husband around the world as he served in the United States Army. I'm a lifelong Republican and conservative. To me, those values more closely represent my biblical values. But, now here's the thing, she says this, but forcing those views on people makes us no better than the progressives who think their way is the highway. Christian nationalism is about power and power corrupts. Again, what does this quote from Douglas Grotice have to do with, number one, forcing those views on anyone? No one is forcing anything. We're talking about defending, preserving ideas that work and arguing in the public square for the power of those ideas, for, 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 the, for those ideas being better than other ideas. That, that's not forcing anything on anyone. And I do agree that forcing people to bow to your ideas or your way of life or bludgeoning them, silencing them, canceling them, making making them unwelcome in the public square is, is a bad thing. I agree with that. But that's not what conservatives do. Conservatives are open to the debate. It's the progressives. It's those that are embracing the antithesis of conservatism that are silencing people that disagree. All right, so uh, I've got so much I need to cover here. I won't have time to cover it in this show. So what is, what is Christian nationalism? She brings that up. And how, how is it different than patriotism or Christianity per se? Um, there's an article that this woman, Gail, posts from, from, uh, from Christianity Today, that, uh, the magazine Christianity Today that this guy attempts to define it. But I disagree with a lot of what he's saying. Part of what he says is that patriotism is love of country, and it's different from nationalism, which is an argument of how to define our country. Well, again, full stop right there. This article says patriotism is love of country, and it's different from nationalism, which is an argument about how to define our country. 
Well, how can you love something if you don't define it? Apparently, the argument that's going to follow after this introductory sentence here is that when people start defining the country, then it's different than loving the country. But what are you loving if it doesn't have definition? If, if it doesn't have borders, if it doesn't have boundaries, if it doesn't have a creed, if it doesn't have a constitution, if it doesn't have a declaration, if it doesn't have given laws, if there are no fences, then where's the freedom? If there are no laws, then you're not going to have liberty. This argument that patriotism is different than nationalism because nationalism wrongly seeks to define the country is crazy. It makes no sense. How can you be a patriot if you don't even know what it is that you're that you're patronizing? <laughs> okay? You, you, you have to have definition of family. You have to have definition of culture. You have to have definition of a city, of a county, of a state. You have to have definition of your of, of what it is you claim to hold dear and love. So if patriotism is love of something, I ask this question, how can you love it if you don't know what it is, if it has no definition? Uh, that's my first, my first critique of this article. Um, this guy goes on to define nationalism, and he starts out by saying, most scholars agree. I hate that. I hate that. Now, I have some of them, their degrees, too. I've got a baccalaureate degree, I've got a master's degree, and I have a PhD. And I don't say that to be boastful or arrogant. I just don't like it when people who share the same pedigrees that I have start out a conversation by saying, most scholars agree. In other words, those of you who aren't scholars need to listen up right now because those of us with those pieces of paper on the wall, we're smarter than you, and we want you to listen up, and we want you to learn. I hate that. I hate that. You have a brain, too. That's the beauty of the Wesleyan quadrilateral. You know, again, reason, tradition, experience, and then, finally, revelation. And you've got a brain, reason. You have rational capacities. And don't let these arrogant elitists silence you or intimidate you when they start out by saying, most scholars agree. First of all, that's a fallacy of ad populum. Just because most scholars agree doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot. Most scholars could be wrong. And often, because they're arrogant elitists, they are. They're navel gazers. They're narcissists. I'm not saying that's what this guy is, but he is making an argument that would betray at least a subliminal attitude in that direction. Most scholars agree that nationalism starts with the belief that humanity is divisible into mutually distinct internally coherent cultural groups defined by shared traits like language, religion, ethnicity, or culture, and that these groups should each have their own governments, and that governments should promote and protect national and cultural identity. Okay, so that's his definition of nationalism. Well, okay, mutually distinct, internally coherent cultural groups defined by shared traits like language, religion, ethnicity, or culture. Okay, I, I guess that your nation should be, I would argue, should have a, con a coherent culture and shared traits uh, like language. You can't communicate with one another if you don't have a national language. Um, now, ethnicity, I'm not sure about that. I don't think most scholars do agree. In the United States of America, we've taken pride that we are a melting pot and different ethnicities are welcome and embraced. There's no ethnic um, 
there's no there's no ethnic test. You don't have to be of a given ethnic group to be an American. In fact, I would venture to guess that many of you listening to me right now would raise your hand and say, "I'm of this country. I'm of this ethnicity. This is my, this is my historical and family background." You come from various different countries and ethnic groups from around the world. The melting pot. We take pride in that. Uh, different different religions. We've had religious freedom from the very beginning, but that doesn't mean we don't have a creed that's grounded in a given religion. Okay. So Christian nationalism, this guy argues, is the belief that America is defined by its Christianity. And then he goes on to say that that's bad, that America is defined by its Anglo-Protestant past, and that we will lose our identity and our freedom if we do not preserve our cultural inheritance. Now, he's arguing that that argument is a bad argument. And then he says this, the term Christian nationalism is relatively new. I agree with that. I agree that it's relatively new. It's been made up by the political left to embarrass patriots from speaking and from engaging in the public square. And it's been made up to silence Christians and tell them to keep their Christianity to themselves. Thank you. And not engage, not engage in these debates like I'm doing right now. Because when you do that, you're betraying the fact that you're a Christian nationalist, and that you have abandoned the gospel for the sake of your Americanism. Okay. Um, I've got so much more I could say about this guy's article, but Gail is using this article to, she's saying she agrees with it, that this is a good definition of why Christian nationalism is bad, and that somehow is different than patriotism. All right. I covered this before months ago. There was an evangelical leader in the Wesleyan Church. His name is David Drury, and he came out against Eric Metaxas and those that were arguing for Christian engagement in the public square. And uh, David Drury said this, for those mixing Christian faith and political activism at my nation's capital, there is sin in the camp. No one to stop blowing trumpets and start self-examination. Replace those, uh, this losing Christian nationalism with prayer and confession, says David Drury. Well, again, nationalism. What does he mean by that? Doesn't he understand? Go look it up. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines nationalism as a preference for and loyalty toward one's nation and one's country. That's it. Richard Lowry for um, National Review says this, nationalism is merely a people's natural devotion to their home and their country. Is, is that bad? Is is nationalism not synonymous with national pride and love of country? Does, doesn't nationalism imply national service, national sovereignty, national borders, a national model, a, a national, uh, excuse me, a national pledge, a national flag? I'll say that again. Doesn't nationalism imply a nation's sovereignty, a nation's borders, a nation's motto, a nation's pledge, a nation's flag? And what about believing that your nation is exceptional, that America is exceptional, and being proud of your nation's borders, sovereignty, motto, creed, being proud enough to serve your nation and pledge allegiance to your nation and honor your nation's flag? Why is this unchristian? Why shouldn't we do that? What about believing in the exceptionalism exceptionalism of your nation is is that a bad thing? Or should you believe that your nation is uh, is not exceptional? That other nations are better than you? 
and in doing that, aren't you betraying the fact that your nationalism for other nations supersedes the nationalism that you have for your own? They work themselves into a vicious circle, dogs chasing their tails when they start making these arguments. Um, and when Drury says, my nation, did you, did you see that in his comment? He said, my nation, isn't he betraying that he's a nationalist? He's claiming this is his nation and he has a better right to define it than you and I do. He betrays himself with his own language. He's implicitly and indignantly scolding others for their nationalism while he's emphasizing his, his nation's capital. And he's demonstrating his own nationalism by doing that. But it apparently escapes his attention. So leaders like Drury and the guy that wrote this article for uh, Christianity Today, they're, they're betraying, in my view, everything that's wrong with a lot that's going on in the evangelical church right now. They're, they're <laughs> pretending that they're not political while they scold you for being political, but then they use a political argument to scold you for your politics. It's my nation. You have, the, you have no right. You have no right to do what you're doing. There's sin in the camp. You need to confess your sins because you're compromising my nation. Really? And you're going to claim that I'm a nationalist? And you're not. Uh, but this is, here's my point in the last couple minutes of the show. This is what the woke and the righteous do. They, content, they condemn you for your sins while they exonerate themselves for doing the same thing. It's, this is an art form for them. They dumb down the definitions of words like Christian nationalism while claiming to preach the word. Um, they, they, they parcel out their definitions of what's right and wrong while they condemn you for belie- believing that things are right and wrong. If the definition doesn't fit, then by all means, they'll just change the definition. Um, they won't change themselves, and they'll call upon you to change while they argue that they don't need to. It's it, So here's my point in this Christian nationalism argument. Why is believing in your nation's exceptionalism, and I'll cover it again in tomorrow's show, the quotes are just replete. You, you could, I could spend two shows, three shows, ten shows, as David Barton does, citing the Christianity of our founding fathers and that our constitution, our creed, uh, our conscience is grounded in the Bible. Uh, I've t- told you that Moses is quoted more often than any other of the anybody else in the founding documents of the United States, and not just the Declaration and the Constitution, but all of the all of the documents in the in the the seminal era of the birth of the United States of America. The the author that's cited more often than any other is Moses. The Bible is quoted more often than any other source. Our founding fathers said that we are a Christian nation. That doesn't make you evil. That admits that our culture and our our laws and our creed and our code of conduct is grounded in something. Is that Christianity? Yes, it is. Does that make me a nationalist? Well, I'm proud of our nation. I'm proud of, of who we are. Is that bad? I guess that's the question for the day. And I hope I can conclude by saying that's a rhetorical question that I think I've already answered. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.